0: Here's your host, Steve Yusko. I am so excited for today's show. Jackie the Jokeman Martling joins me as we discover his journey from music, if you can believe it, to mirth. The famed writer and comedian for The Howard Stern Show from 1983 to 2001 delves into his career. We tell a few jokes. It gets a little blue, so adults only. Hey, let's jump right into the show. Very, very honored right now to introduce to all of you a very special man. He's come all the way to our show for the first time,
1: Mr. Jackie, the joke man, Mark Thank you, Gene. That's very nice.
0: Hey, everybody. I am so excited uh, about the show today. You know, the Long Island Sound is all about music and entertainment. And we've got the guy who's got a little bit of music and a lot of entertainment. I want to welcome Jackie the Joke Man to the Long Island Sound Podcast. Jackie, so great to see you.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, I got to get some people to that show. It, it looks like people are kind of excited about it, though, so I don't think we're going to have trouble filling it up.
0: Yeah, well, it's. I tell you, I'm going to send social media out. I'm going to be at the show as well. Just what Jackie's talking about on January twenty seventh. There's going to be a screening of your documentary, right? I believe. Yeah. Uh, uh, called. You haven't heard this one, and uh, no,
1: no, that that's actually the tagline. The name of ah, it. The name of ahead. it is actually Joke Man. Joke Man. Got and it. That's just the slug line. It's just you haven't heard this one. You know.
0: Got it. the slug line. Got it. Hey, I'm learning shit. What can I tell you? There you go. Hey, so I'm a, I'm an old Island Trees Levittown guy. I graduated high school in '79. I've seen you perform. Uh, it's I tell you, it's one thing, and I I got to tell you, I'm I'm a little starstruck here. So just bear with me. I'm really enamored by musicians who've woodshedded their craft and comedians who can get up there on stage and do what you do, and it's just. Uh, I tell you, you, I think I was reading one of your bios. They call you a savant of remembering every joke you ever told, which I think is, is kind of amazing. You know, you're no dummy. <laughs> you know,
1: it's, it's a weird thing because that's all I can remember. I couldn't tell you what I had for breakfast, you know, <laughs> but uh, but I really do know so many jokes. I've known them. It's not that I just, you know, I, I started doing comedy just because I bailed out of music because I wasn't making any money and I didn't see any success in my future. And I just said, well, let me just tell these jokes on stage so I can come up with something better. And I never looked back. I just got luckier. And, you know, luck favors the prepared, you know. But I have right. known all these jokes. I have been telling them and listening to them and repeating them ever since I was a little kid. And by the mid-70s, when we had our band, the Off Hour Rockers, we played all over Long Island. And... We played songs and told jokes and of course if you tell jokes on stage everybody's like I got a joke for you And nobody ever had a joke for me that I didn't know They just and that was in the 70s that's 40 years ago 50 years ago you know
0: I I tell you that's amazing I think everyone has somebody in their life who uh you know you know They tickle your funny bone right and you know I'm thinking my friend Bob Murray he always has a joke he's a great businessman and he kind of just draws you in he almost kind of leans in and in a whisper and tells the joke and then it's like you know three four rapid fire and you walk away smiling and you're not worried about your troubles and i think that's that's what you bring your audience for sure
1: and you know people like that you know if you bring a smile to somebody's face they're glad to see you you know they're glad to see you the next time you know they seek you out which is yeah. uh, which is great fun and if you're a ham that likes to tell jokes it's a It's a, you know, it's a symbiotic relationship, you
0: know. Right. Well, you know what is, I've I've been delving into a lot of stuff on YouTube, refreshing my memory about your act and what you do. And what really kind of got me was you got a great smile, you know, and you just bring that. There's like the sense of joy. And I look at that musicians who have a sense of joy when they're playing. It's like you just you just brought me into your living room with your smile. And then and then you kind of hit it, you know. Uh, It's 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 a skill for sure. You know,
1: it's 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 got nothing to do with anything, really. Okay, it's always bothered me watching great musicians or great singers and performers. And I just want to go up and shake them and say, you know, if you made it look like you were having a little bit better of a time yourself. It would just enhance it for everybody else. It's not that it's, it's not going to change a note on your guitar or a chord on your piano, you know. But some people just look like they, you know, they'd rather be anywhere than than up on that stage. They're like, Jesus Christ, man, you're lucky. Enjoy yeah. yourself, you know.
0: Well, yeah, you know, it's true. But it's also, I think, uh, and I've looked at entertainers on both sides of it. Is when you become more transparent. Uh, obviously, when you become more relaxed with yourself and and know and know your gig, you know. Uh, that just really lets people in. It's not, it's not easy for a lot of people. I can't, I mean, I've been on stage a couple of times with my daughter doing puns, uh, at this place called the Punderdome and I did two minutes and it scared the shit out of me. I, I made, I made it through when I came back with that. I think you were talking about the slop sweat, you know, down, down your back, you yeah, know, Slop sweat. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah sweat. You know, it's, it's, everybody, everybody learns the existence of that, you know, the hard way, you know. Yeah. Hey, let's let's
0: turn back the pages. Tell me about your early life with that band, because um, let me give a little inside information. My my good friend, Mike Nugent uh, uh, knows you. And we were at uh, my father's place. And all of a sudden you're there, uh, which is kind of magical to me. And he goes, oh, yeah, I know him through here, through Kevin Kelly and this and that. And I'm like, wow. And you and by the way, thank you. You were so generous to say, hey, I got a podcast, too. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll be on your podcast. So I appreciate that. Sure, so let's, turn, sure. Let's, let's turn back the pages to uh, the music part of it. I want to get you know, because I even spoke to my wife and she's like, Jackie's he's he's a comedian, what, what's he doing on Long Island Sound? I said, He's a musician too, and many people I don't think know that. So tell me about those uh, early years.
1: In, in uh, when I was a kid, I, I went to uh, kindergarten with my friend Chris Bates, okay. and we, were, we went all through school together and come around. I guess eighth grade, I guess I caught wind. We were a very small school, but I caught wind of like uh, that he was playing the guitar. I don't know how I knew that. And, uh, and I went up to him and said, hey, Batesy, are, are you uh, playing the guitar? And what happened was, and this is how I'll, I'll date myself right here. He, okay. uh, he went to Sunday school and there was a girl in his Sunday school class who said, oh, you know who's really cool? Ricky Nelson is so cool. Back in those days, there was a show called Ozzy and Harriet. Sure. And Ricky Nelson was literally the first music video. At the end of every Ozzy and Harriet, Ricky and his band would play a song. And he would croon. And, of course, he sold millions and millions of records. And he did look very cool and very Elvis-like with his little sneer. And they were great songs, of course, written by the greatest, you know, Ozzy Nelson and Harriet. There were band leaders in the forties, so oh, wow. you know they had access to everybody, and uh, so he's, you know, the girl said that he was so cool, so he figured he'd learn how to play a guitar, so he went and signed up for guitar lessons, and never saw the girl again. She never came back to Sunday school. <laughs> right. so he said, "Yeah, I'm learning the guitar, and um, I'm a little ways along." And he said, "You know, if I taught you a couple chords." We could have a band and have a lot of fun. I said, That's amazing. Sounds good to me. You know, he's, he actually said to me, I can teach you four chords, meaning C, A minor, F, G, which is like the typical rock and roll yep. podca- uh, podcast. You know, it's like the, uh, the formula for, for uh, you know, one, six minor, four, five. They're just the same song. Yep. You know, yep. the one, four, five thing is, is just the foundation of every song in the world. So he started showing me some chords and then I got carried away and just got so into it. And we had a band all through high school. Wow. And we were, we were literally playing, we were playing instrumentals. And at some point I said to him, you know, we got to sing. Okay. <laughs> and he said, what are you talking about? I said, we're not going to get anywhere unless we sing. He said, but we can't sing. I said, it doesn't matter. We have to sing. <laughs> so we started singing and we were doing oldies, a lot of oldies. But believe it or not, when we were doing oldies, it was like Dion and the Belmonts and Little sure. Anthony, those were already oldies. Oh we wow. We started having a band because Little Anthony and Dion were from like 57, 58, 59, and here it is 1962. And uh and we're rolling right along, and then this new group came from England, these guys, the Beatles, and yeah. blew everybody out of their seats, and we just loved them. So we learned so many Beatles songs and Actually, got in trouble with uh, the people that came to see us because they're like, "You play too many Beatles songs." I go, no, that's stuff, crap. We love, we love them. Right, right. And, and then I went away to school and played in a band in school, and came home on the on the summer and played with my friend Chris Bates again. And this was so long ago, literally <laughs> the summer between nineteen sixty-seven, uh, you know from the 67 sixty-seven sixty-eight. Uh, Mm -hmm. summer school year between the school years we actually had a guy who played accordion in our band (laughs) and then went back to school and played some more and then came back the next summer and played again and um, and then things got you then it was the 60s and it got wacky and I stayed out in Michigan I literally worked construction Sure. For six months, and that was just long enough to let me know that I will never, ever, ever, <laughs> ever do that again. Right. And then I ran into the same guy, Chris Bates, came through Denver, and he said, "Hey, let's go back to New York and play." And I'm like, "You know what? It beats it beats shoveling cement." Yeah, sure. And I came back, and we started the Off Hour Rockers, and we drove around Long Island in a bright yellow Cadillac 1955 hearse. For the for the whole, you know, everybody knew that car, and it was it uh, was it was the seventies, and it was crazy, and we were getting stoned and getting drunk and getting laid and having a wonderful time, and then wondering why we weren't getting famous. And it was probably because we didn't know what we were doing, right, uh, right. You know, the music, you know, between the the booze and the pot and the girls, I think music was a, a distant fourth on the priorities. <laughs> and then we broke up because it was. You know, it was like nineteen seventy eight and we were making, you know, eighty dollars a week a piece and it was like this is not working. Right. And I started uh it was really funny. The owner of a club that we played at decided he wanted us to do a record uh and make a song a uh, make a, a, a forty five RPM single out of one of the crazy songs that we played. Okay. Called the Pot Song. And another guy was playing in another, uh, another night in the same bar. And so he had a studio. So we recorded at his studio. Now, I didn't really know the guy because if you play in a bar. You don't know the guys that play on the other nights because you, you don't see them. You know, yeah, you're your playing in another bar. Ship's so, passing uh, in the night. Absolutely. Right. right. And uh, so we went to this guy's studio and recorded. And he really liked me and asked me to work for him. And so I worked at the studio for a couple of years and then decided I was going to give a go at this comedy thing. And here it is 40 years later. And that guy who asked me to work in his studio is married to my sister. <laughs> Kevin, Kevin <laughs> yeah. Kelly, right? And, that, and that's Kevin Kelly. And I started putzing
0: uh-huh. and
1: I was, you know, telling my jokes and I wasn't really any good. But from working in the studio, I knew how to make a record. I knew oh, how to make an album. I knew all I needed was a tape and some money and a few pictures. And it was like baking a cake. So I borrowed money from a bunch of different people. Uh-huh. And I actually cut up, you know, one of my, a couple of my shows with the razor blade and, and you know, splice them together. So they got the best of all the shows. Right. And next thing I knew, I had an album. And people were freaked out because nobody had albums. There weren't CDs and cassettes. It was like, it was yeah. unheard of that I had an album. And uh, because in those days, like Bill Cosby and George Carlin, they had records because they were signed to huge, huge uh, record companies. But yep. here I am, just a lowlife. But nobody knows that. You have a record. It's such a calling card. Yep. And then I made another one. And then I made another one. And we're sending them all over the place. The the woman who became my future ex-wife, me and her uh, worked really, really hard and we sent the records to everybody. And in 1982, we sent a set of records to Howard Stern. Yep. Who I had no idea who he was. I just heard of him when I was down in uh, Washington, D.C. And he called me up and said, why don't you come sit in on the show? We think you're very funny. And I went in and sat there and they said, you're a lot of fun. Come back next week. And, you know, next thing I knew, old Jed's a millionaire. You know, it was that simple, <laughs> you know.
0: It's it's just just amazing. You know, as I'm listening to your story, one, I'm thinking about the branding of the, uh, the hearse, the yellow hearse, you know, you're marketing uh, yourself, even though it, you're running around in this hearse, right? <laughs> and then you're doing what I think successful people do is you're throwing everything, you're throwing the spaghetti against the wall, you know, to see what what really sticks just one
1: foot in front of the other I had no idea I didn't have a goal in mind uh I just I just had my goal was to leave what's here now behind and keep going right right. I I was not bound for the radio I knew with my dirty jokes I wasn't bound for Carson I didn't know who I was going to run into or what was going to happen but it just felt creative and it was really fun, you know, so I just kept going, you know.
0: Yeah, you know, look, looking at, at your show and what you do, it's almost vaudevillian uh, aspect to to how you, you approach it. It's kind of like a machine gun approach, but what I really appreciated in, in watching what you do is how you interweave the silence into it. You know, that whole that whole rhythm approach is, does that come natural to you? Is that something you recognize or is it something you experiment with over the different shows that you've done over the years?
1: Everything, you know, it's really funny. When you start playing guitar, you know, you play guitar and then you have to change your strings, which is such a major pain in the ass. (laughs) And then, you know, when you have a a little bit more money, you change them a little more often and you don't really know what you're doing. And after X amount of time, And then one day I picked up a book and it it showed you how to restring your guitar. And it showed how to do it exactly the way that I did it after trial and error of how many years and years and years you just get so you know what's right and the amount of loops and the whole deal like that. It's just the more you do something, it just... You kind of find your way, you know.
0: Yeah, you find I, I, you find I, your groove.
1: I I think you know I'm I'm not, I'm guessing. You know I know how how it is for other people. You know, some people just get up and like Pat Cooper. <clears throat> he just never wrote anything down in his life. He just went out and rambled and rambled. Me, wow. I got books and uh, you know loose leaves and so much stuff written down and typed out. You know, I always had to really really work at it. You know, <clears throat> you have to really work hard to make it look like it's effortless.
0: Right. That's I, what's I, really
1: crazy. You know what yeah, I mean?
0: Yeah. hundred percent. So I'm going to tell you my quick Howard Stor- Stern story, right? Because you said, you know, you really know who the, you didn't listen to the radio. You didn't really know who the guy was, right? And I'm working in Manufacturer's Hanover in Hicksville. I'm answering the phone on the other side of the ATM. You know, when things were slow, we're looking up people and shit like that, you know? And all of a sudden, I get Howard on the phone. Something screwed up. He, I think it ate his card or something. He put the code in the wrong time, you know. So I'm trying to help him. He's getting frustrated, and he starts cursing me out. And, you know, and the, the guys see that, hey, you know, I'm getting, like, anxious, you know. And they lean over, and he's like, oh, that's Howard Stern. He's on, you know, whatever, NBC. And, you know, he's great. And I'm like, he's an asshole. Click. <laughs> <laughs> so, Howard, if you're listening, yeah, that was me, Okay. <laughs>
1: You know, I, I, life is like a prism. You don't know who you're getting. You know, you get you get this one person one time and you see the same person the next time. And, you know, it's, it's very strange. It's very strange, you know. It's like relatives. Yeah. If you see a relative that doesn't know they're your relative because you're seeing them out of context and they act like an idiot, it's like, oh, that's my <laughs> relative, you know.
0: <laughs> hey, speaking of relatives, I saw in an interview you were talking about how you thought your bro- your your late brothers and your mom were were the funniest, and you weren't that funny. And I, I found that's so no, odd. No,
1: I didn't. Yeah. I didn't mean I wasn't funny at all. But they're all they so, they were so smart. Uh, and smart is equals funny. They were so witty and so yeah. funny and so brilliant. You know, I didn't mean I wasn't funny. I was. I was always trying to be funny. You know. Right, but they right. but it wasn't like, hey Jackie's the life of the party, let's just watch him. it was like a uh, you know it was e- equal equal guns, you know yeah. it was it was it was an interesting table, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's you know, it's funny. You do you do pull comedy from your parents and stuff like that, and and you know I, you know people compliment me. Says, oh, you're just like your, your father. You're real scotch. You know, you really bust balls. And and uh, I use it a way. I use comedy as a way to break through barriers. You know, to get to know people, and and that just becomes a thread
1: you know, in your suit of who well, you that's are. That's that's the purpose of it. You know, I, that's yeah. always been the purpose of it.
0: Hey, Let's do this, Jackie. Let's just take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk about uh, uh, Dixon's White House Inn because I had some experience there, too, and talk about how the early years and and how you got your break and and where you went from there. So we're going to investigate that and we're going to be right back with Jackie, the joke man, Martling. Stick with us, everybody.
1: Are you ready for the ultimate podcasting adventure the long island sound podcast offers you not one but two ways to engage with our captivating content tune in to our audio podcast on your favorite platform and let your imagination paint vivid pictures of long island stories or if you're craving a visual feast catch our video podcast on spotify and on the long island sound youtube channel double the options double the excitement
0: as I was, uh, let me repeat. So, I was repeating to Jackie about how I got into this podcasting. Um, and it, it it's a really parallels you being in the studio, you know, putting tape together, you know, and, and getting an album. You know, hey, I'm a little techie. I can know how to work cameras, I can speak in front of people. Uh, I, it's almost my little incubator. Uh, you learn how to speak better and how to become a better interviewer and you listen back and you, you know, just like you, when you watch your stuff, you cringe a little bit. I could have done this. I could have done that. And then you're better the next time. And, uh, I tell you, my wife, what kicked it in for me is we drove up to New, uh Vermont. Right. And I forced my wife to, to my Irish wife to, to listen to it, you know, and she actually said to me, she goes, you're actually pretty good at this. And I almost like
1: crashed the car.
0: I'm like, wow,
1: a compliment. <laughs> You know, that's, that's, you know, Mark Twain said he could live for two months on a good compliment. You know, that just keeps you going. Yeah. You know? And I tell, I tell you, the
0: community of musicians on Long Island and as you get deep into it, and I use this catchphrase, you know, the wellspring of talent. We got a shitload of talent. I, I mean, you could just go from you to Eddie Murphy, you know, the entertainment of the Long Island Music Entertainment uh, Hall of Fame. You know, it's it's just unbelievable, you know, I don't know what's in the water here, but it produces good people, you know, and, uh, people entertain us. So
1: anyway, yeah, I've um, always, I've always said it's a salt water. It's a salt in the air where it makes us all horny and crazy and happy. And
0: you know, <laughs> and sad and, ev- and everything else early on. So now, um, you're, 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 the band's not going, you got to make money and your friend talks you into going, uh, into comedy. Tell me, Bring me back to that time. How did that no, kick? It,
1: what's, the reason I'm a comedian yeah. is because Epi from My Father's Place <laughs> yeah. is such a cheap bastard. <laughs> and that is a direct link. <laughs> My band, the off Our Rockers, we were very small. Two guys with a guitar, with two guitars, sometimes with a bass player. And right it was a big deal if you got to play at my father's place oh it's a yeah. big deal and once yep. in a while we get to play there and we're booked to the play there and you know we get two or three or four hundred of our you know we tell people hey you know we're gonna find you hit you with an axe if you don't show up <laughs> for it's <this> big <laughs> right. and it would all come out it would be a great night always and we showed up in the afternoon To do our sound check, and we couldn't do the sound check at my father's place, you know, the old one in Roslyn. Yep. Because Eppie had booked his club for the gong show auditions for Channel 7 TV. (laughs) Okay. So we couldn't do our sound check, and I'm out of my mind, pissed off, and we're sitting there, and I'm watching these guys audition. You know, somebody's hitting their head with a spoon, and somebody else is juggling, and these two different guys get up and, you know, and they're trying to be comics. And I'm <laughs> right. watching them and I'm, you know... They, they suck. <laughs> they came off stage. No, they were not that terrible. And they came off stage and and I went up to one of them. I said, uh, you know, I, I tell jokes in my band. You should stick around and watch. And he's like, all right. So he stayed around and watched. And he loved what we did. And... Uh, he said, well, you, you know, you're very funny. I said, thanks. And uh, I said, how'd you get to be a comedian? And I swear on my mother. He pulled out a card and said, uh, I had cards made. And here's his card. <laughs> Richie Minervini, a comedian. And his agent was Betty Patterson, who was Patty Smythe's mother of all the craziness. Wow. And he says, uh, yeah, we, we do, do our comedy at Richard M. Dixon's White House. And you should come over there and meet the guys. And I said sure, and uh, I went over there, and it was me and Minervini and Bob Nelson, Rob oh, Bartlett, sure. yeah. Dave Hawthorne, Bob Woods, uh, uh, Eddie Murphy was there. It, it, was, it was Bob Bobby uh, Bobby Collins. Like everybody wasn't there every night. Like it, it was like a mix and match. Whoever showed up. Sure. And um, and Dixon didn't like me because I was dirty, and <laughs> and he was a fruitcake anyway. But. Uh, we had fun, and then he wouldn't pay us. You know, he'd only <laughs> give us five dollars a piece and a few drinks. So we uh, found a place in Huntington that would let us take the door. Uh, you know, right? You serve the drinks and the food, and we'll take the door. And me and Richie, Richie Minervini, we we started the show at Cinnamon in Huntington. Oh, and sure. That's uh, that's when I created five one six nine two two wine, my dirty joke wine. I created that specifically to promote the shows at Cinnamon and Huntington which w- within a year and a half or so blossomed into the East Side Comedy Club which was the first comedy club on Long Island. So it was wow. a whole linear one thing after the other and it was all because he was so cheap that he <laughs> stuck that stupid gunk. so I would I, I might have eventually met Richie or some you know. Right. That was the path I was kind of on but who who knows you know but it was just it was just, uh, it's, it's, I, I,
0: just it's just perfect it's it, it's amazing for those who don't know and, and richard m dixon's white house was this little club on 107 in like uh seaford massapequa i don't know the lines there kind of change and it was a guy who will it was a quote a, a nixon a look you know to a, to a certain he degree he actually
1: had his face surgically altered. altered to look more like nixon
0: you know Holy moly! That's 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 nuts. I'm going to tell you my I'm going to tell you my Epi story. So Mike Nugent introduces me. Oh, I know Epi. You know you should talk to him. So out of the blue, I call him one day, and and he was uh he was annoyed, <laughs> just that podcasting. is like I don't know how you son of a bitches make any money these fucking podcasts. Blah 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 blah. And he's going on and on. I'm like, hey, no Epi. You know you don't have to be on. Blah blah. He goes, well, if you want to you want to ride some of these coattails, you know. This guy, Derek Adams, you got to to get him on your program. (laughs) Just same thing. Just like this circumstance, I wouldn't have got uh, Derek, who's a phenomenal guitarist, uh, on the program without that curmudgeon (laughs) experience. And yeah, who knows where it's going to lead, you know? It's just amazing.
1: It's so funny. The first time I ran into Robert Klein, I don't know, decades and decades ago. But I don't know where I was or where we were. He was good friends with Rodney Dangerfield okay but that's not where I met him and uh, he was somewhere and um, maybe a radio function or something and uh, I said God well you know I want to talk to Klein and then the dawn the, the dawn uh, the light bulb went off in my head and I walked up to him and said hey Robert Epi says hello <laughs> and he looked at me and smiled and he said, How much do you owe you? I said a lot. He said, Me too. we've been friends for forty years.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh man. That 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 is just great. You know, it's funny, you would talk about, you know, uh I think it was Brennan, one one of the comedians said, you know, one of his successes in in earning somewhat of a limit uh a living in comedy was he goes. I had a buddy who stood at the door and kept everybody honest with the clicker when they came through the door, when he was getting a, you know, a piece, a piece of the action, you know, it's just, uh, it's amazing. You know, it
1: was, it was a necessity, you know? Yeah. Yeah.
0: So now all of a sudden you're, you're, you're a local known entity. Okay. You've got, you've got this great skill to remember every joke, which is is fascinating. I think I remember like three jokes, standard jokes, which I got to work on that. But, um, so now you send these albums out, you send it to Stern, and then you start going there for free, from like, what, what I understand. What happened, yeah. what
1: happened was I went in there, he called up, my, my office was in my mother's attic, and that's <laughs> okay. where we had all of the dial joke machines. I literally had phone-mate answering machines with separate tapes. You, you really? You would not believe it, you know, and... Um, So the phone rang, and uh, it was Nancy called from the house that we had finally rented. We were renting a house, but we still had the office. We're still in my mother's attic. And she said, that disc jockey Howard Stern called. He wants you to call him. So I called, and he got on the phone right away. and said, you know, we think you're really funny. Why don't you come in? We're having a a talent contest over the telephone. And at the time, I, I, I had started Governor's Comedy Shop. Oh and right, and those, I remember I was, in Levittown. I, yeah, and I was booking all those acts, and I'd actually make a little bit of money doing it. But all of a sudden, here's a phone call from you know, 30 Rockefeller Plaza, which is not Levittown. And I said, <laughs> right. sure, I'll come in. I went in, and I sat there with Howard and Robin and Fred, and we laughed for four hours. And at the end of the at the end of the show, Howard said, you know, you're a lot of fun. Why don't you come back next week? Well, I said sure. So I came back the next week, and then after. A couple of weeks, they said, you know, we really need a piece of business with you. And I told him, well, I know so many jokes. I say, I play this game. The audience yells the subject and I give him a joke. Well, wow. He said, well, why don't we make it two line jokes and we'll call stump the comedians and you could bring in your friends. And it was so funny because I'd try and get people to come on the Stern show with me. and there were people I t- like if I said to you, Steve, you want to come on the Howard Stern show? And they would say, what's it pay? <laughs> I said, what do you mean, what does it pay? It's a 50,000-watt major billboard. <laughs> unbelievable. You know, more people going to hear you than they're going to hear you in the next 100 clubs where you work. What's it pay? And to this day, I have guys come up to me and go, I can't believe I had a chance to go on the Howard Stern show. I didn't go. And he wasn't anybody yet. But right. it didn't matter because it was, it was radio. It was tri-state area radio, you know. But at any rate, I went in and... Uh, and we had such a good time. And then he got fired from NBC and got rehired at Rock. And then after a couple months, uh, I got a phone call when I was on the road and said, listen, we're going to mornings starting on Monday. And uh, I need you to give me a price and come in t- two days a week. Well, wow. I said, fine. And <clears throat> by that time, I was passing him notes and making them a lot funnier. So I went from two to three to four to full time pretty quickly. Because right. he was, he was. Truth be told, he was a lot funnier the days I was there. You know, it was an, another person driving the bus. That's all. You know, a little bit of wind at your back helps everybody. You know. Yeah, so, sure. And- so it was, uh, and and then the rise was crazy. You know, more and more stations, and more and more stations, and it, it was just more and more famous, and it was. Uh, and it just happened slow. It was like the frog frog on the frying pan, you know, like the next thing I turn around whoa. When did this we, happen, you know?
0: Well you know what you know what's I find interesting? You know, you were talking about um, you know, your your dirt your jokes were dirty, you know, so you know you wouldn't get here or there with that, but you kinda continued with it. And then you parallel that with Stern and you know, I really didn't like to be honest with you, Howard Stern in the early days. It's just like, Oh, geez, you know, I just just wasn't my thing, you know, and I've my friend Pete Collins, man, he you know
1: he I love him. Baba Booey, Booyah, Bing, 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 you know. But well, you I have that some people love them, some people hate them. You know, it, it, it was, it, it, you never knew, and you never knew who. This guy might hate him, and his wife loved him. You know, you never could tell. You never could tell. You
0: know. Yeah, but he was—he was on everybody's radar, whether you loved him or hate him. Just like P.T. Barnum, I don't care. It's like as long as they spell my name right, who gives a shit, right? Right. right.
1: If you want to—if you want to keep in the conversation at the water cooler, you better have an idea what's going on. You know. So listen to
0: this. I happen to be uh, working in Canada. You know, I'm in sales in in the alarm business. You know, and I'm up in Quebec, in Montreal, and uh, Howard Stern apparently got syndicated up there and uh, i think he went off on the french <laughs> in, in the in the french market and i'm telling you i'm from long island they know sterns from you know new york long island and i was catching shit for what he was saying on the radio it was you just know, amazing
1: it was we finally got on in toronto and montreal right and we became number 1 like in a day we became the number one radio. It was um, I used to write his, uh, his speeches, his uh, uh, welcome speeches, you know. Oh, so his, it's your his fault. Press conference and and oh the stuff we brought, oh just hysterical, crazy stuff. And all, I was, he always got quoted in the newspaper. And it was always horrible stuff that I wrote, silly stuff, you know, stupid stuff. Yep, and yep. we were on, and we became number one in Toronto and Montreal, and we were tearing the place up for. I don't know whether it was a month or two months or three months, however long. And then we got syndicated into Vancouver, Vancouver and Edmonton. Okay. And they hated us so much in Vancouver (laughs) that we got canceled right across the board. Oh, shit. We not only got canceled in Vancouver, we got canceled in Toronto. Just funny like a bunch you know. of dominoes, and right? Just, just like dominoes. Boom, all of a sudden we were right off the board. It was so funny. And it happened so <laughs> fast. right? Like, zoom, zoom. Yeah. <laughs>
0: ah, it was oh, great. Well. <laughs> hey, so let me, let me ask you this. So, so you've toured around you know, the United States. You know, I've always, you know, let, let me give you an analogy. I was in uh, when um, uh, Seinfeld was on, right? Uh, And it was really booming, you know. And I went into a bar in Charleston, South Carolina. And, you know, everybody knew it was on this particular time of the week. And I'm like, oh, it's on now. I'm really curious if this comedy is going to play in South Carolina. And, you know, you watch. and, And it did. I'm curious from your perspective in touring around, one, does it play? Does your stuff not play in certain parts of the country or do you read the audience or I, do, you, do you adjust for different parts of the country? Once, I'm once, real curious.
1: Once the Stern show caught fire, whenever I went to one of the affiliates, you know, like Denver, Miami, Chicago, Boston, I right across. The, it was it was, you know, it was seamless. It was the same uh, in the early days. Like, I tell jokes, you know, I tell dirty jokes, and dirty jokes are dirty jokes. And for the most part, I never, ever would change my act. But the first time I got booked in Nashville, Tennessee, okay. I went down there, and I did okay. But nowhere's near like I like to do. And I'm headlining. Right. And I thought about it. And the next night, and this is not a cut on the people of the South, they just operate at a different speed. I went, one third as fast. I took my time with the jokes and gave them plenty of time to digest the jokes. And <laughs> right. I killed, I killed the room. It's just, I was going too fast for people to, you know, that's just, that's just not the, Not—not le- not, it's not the level of conversation. It's not the pace of conversation. And plus I'm, I'm a New Yorker, and I go fast way too fast for some New Yorkers. You know, people say, I've been back to see you three times, and it seems like it's a different show every time because I'm laughing at this, and I miss the next one. And then the next time, they laugh at the next one, and they miss the next one, you know. But it was really funny. That was the one time I actually literally adjusted, you know. It was was really interesting, really interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm thinking about? About what you do, right? And in the by the way, in the workplace now, okay, I can't tell your jokes, uh, and maybe for a good reason uh, of offending somebody or you know where it's going to trigger something of that sort of thing. So the only place to hear a good dirty joke is in the privacy of a locker room or in a comedy shop or you know <coughs> online. Uh, which maybe. is just
1: which is just such horseshit, you know. Uh, I know that. The boss should not be taking advantage of his secretary, et cetera. Right. But everybody meets their partners in the workplace or at lunchtime. Or, you know, that if a guy says, like, you know, you, you know, it's one thing if the boss says, blow me or you're fired. That's that's a whole <laughs> different level. Right. Um, but if you say to the woman working at the next desk, you know, you look really good today. You can't even say that nowadays. You know, you can get brought up on charges for telling somebody they look good, and right. you know the world is going to hell in a handbasket. You know, Jesus. And you know, you know that,
0: that brings it back to you know what? We have to be able to laugh at ourselves. I mean, that's uh, personally that's how you get through life. We all have our ups and downs, and sometimes and, you just and take a break.
1: Everything to me hinges on intent. You know, if Agreed. you could know, say the same thing in a different way and offend people or not offend people, you know, it, 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 you know, people just the bottom line is just act, act nice, be a, be a decent human being. It's that easy. You know, Yeah,
0: don't, don't be a dick.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know that they that, they should
0: sky write that. You know, put that on T-shirts. You know, right? Exactly. So, so um, you've got. Let's. I really want to talk to the audience about the Long Island Music and Entertainment Hall of Fame. It opened over a little little over a year ago. They've been going strong for about. 15 or 16 years doing all these different galas and, and and inducting people into the hall of fame they finally got a place in stony brook i don't know if you've been out there uh, i yeah, was check there in. a
1: couple times it is so nice i actually co-hosted with bob buckman you know who that was bob oh yeah Buck- sure me and buckman from wbab we co-hosted the very first uh, awards program for the Long Island uh, entertainment. What was it? Was the Long Island Music Hall of Fame when it first started? Right. It was right. so funny because if you ever drove over Long Island in a helicopter, you were you qualified to be in the Hall of Fame. So <laughs> right, I mean, right. everybody, you know, between George Gershwin and uh, you know Little Anthony and and uh, the, the Brooklyn Bridge and Leslie <laughs> right. West and. Uh, and Billy, the whole the whole world was there, and it was, it was just so much fun. It was at the Patchogue Theater. Oh, but nice. It, it was their first time, and they didn't really know what they were doing. And they had these long, long, long speeches for the people oh. that were that were accepting awards. And little Anthony got up there, and I thought his head was going to explode. You know, he thought <laughs> he was going to have to get up there and say, Thank you very much, you know. <laughs> you know Hello, my name is Lawrence. Blah, 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 blah. Jesus Christ. Oh my... So... <laughs> The audience is freaking out and nothing's going right right so luckily I was there and I was going out in between acts and sh- you know like tumbling like I was, like it was uh like we we're at the Catskills you know <laughs> keeping the keeping the balls in the air keeping people laughing and they were they were very thrilled with me and uh, and I never heard from them again until now time. but we had a good time we had a good time yeah, yeah. so on
0: January 27th uh, you're gonna have the screening of of your your movie, which is great, and then you're gonna do a Q and A afterwards. So that's yeah. That you should...
1: know, everybody. I've been off the Stern Show for so long, yep. but between being on the Stern Show for 20 years or, and being around Long Island for so long, I, I have people come up to me all the time. Oh, I saw you at Rum Runner in 1975. Oh, yeah. I saw you at Neptune's in 1978, and I saw you at these psych- You know, people. I've been collecting friends and fans, you know, people say, "Oh, I saw you forty years ago. I said, "Well, where have you been? you know, if you came back a couple times, I'd have a few more dollars, you know But, <laughs> right. uh, but it's really fun, so I, I expect to. and so often when weird things happen, somebody will say, "No, I'm sure you don't remember this, but blah blah blah, I'm like, of course I remember that, you know, because the outrageous stuff, right you know, The right. guy who did a movie who's one of the owners of the right track Inn in Freeport. Oh, I remember that. And he said, you won't remember this, but I I grabbed a girl one time. I was working as a bouncer, and I grabbed her, and we went out and got in the back of your hearse. And (laughs) she was going down on me, and and all of a sudden, you must have come out there to smoke a joint or something. And you opened the door. It was pretty obvious what she was doing. And he said, and you just grabbed her and gave her a big kiss on the lips and then (laughs) set her back to work. I said, of course I remember that. I, that, that didn't happen every minute. You know, that, was, that, was, that was kind of a fun thing, you know. It was so silly. Oh,
0: man, that's a wild story, man. <laughs> oh,
1: God. You know, the back of our hearse, A hearse is a huge, huge car, a huge, like, station wagon. And the back, we had a whole platform with a rug on it. So it was, a, it was basically a floating motel room. You know, there, there was room for the equipment underneath, and oh, and and the whole right track in used to empty out. At one point, we counted eighteen people smoking pot in the back of the hearse, and then the door opened up, and there was a cop, and he was like, "Jesus Christ, what are you got?" And not just closed the door again and went away. They didn't give a fuck. You know, nineteen seventy-five. You know, wow. So-
0: let me ask this. Pride prior to the Stern show, you're 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 on the comedy circuit, were you just local or you know, were you were you like regional with it? And I was, then
1: I was producing uh for the most part, I was producing shows. I was uh until governors, there was like a couple of years there where every every bar I just I I put shows in uh and Reinhardt's in Bayville and the Park Lounge out in Suffolk and Heckle and Jekyll's in Massapequa. I I can't even name them, but but every place. I had these, you know, they'd give me money and I'd pay the comics and I'd bring the sound system. And I just created and created work for guys because there was no places to work. There was no East Side Comedy Club yet, you know. I did that and did that. Then when I got Governors, my deal with Governors was I was allowed to go one week out of the month and I started you know getting more well-known so I I wouldn't take tours I mean I only I I went on maybe two or three like I toured uh, the South with Rich Jenny who was an amazing comic and Uh this is so long ago that I was actually the headliner and his the middle act and he wound up being one of the funniest guys in the world and we went away for I think six weeks you know, a week in Augusta, a week in Atlanta, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But but for the most part, i go to, like, Chicago and come home. Or I'd right. go to Fort Wayne and come home. And I'd Oof. go to uh, the Virginia Beach Comedy Club and come home. And go to Boston and, you know, and, and I went to, you know, Niagara Falls. I went to Saratoga a lot. I went to Poughkeepsie a lot. All over Jersey, all over Pennsylvania. You well. know, just like millions and millions of these gigs that you don't realize how many there were till you start thinking back about them. You know, like, whoa, you know, St. Louis, uh, you know, a, a couple in L.A., a couple in Las Vegas. It was, you know, a couple in Texas. Oh, wow. And, it, you know, it was, and it wasn't big money. It was, you know, you just glad to be working, you know
0: yeah, sure. sure. you know, just just surviving, you know, getting gigs and and, and moving on that, you know. So you still touring these days or I, I
1: just go and do a, I do a show and come home. You know, sometimes I'll have uh, two shows on a weekend. sometimes I'll go a month without having a show. Right. It's very hit and miss and everything got really screwed up with the pandemic. So
0: let me let me ask you this: When you decided to say, "Yeah, we want to do a documentary," it's almost like this is your life, Jackie Martling. You know, uh, bruises, scars, ups, downs, uh, alcohol—you name it. Hey, you know, it's almost you know, you're really, You're really making yourself transparent to people, well, and then you're happened, having people. What
1: happened was that these people <clears throat> wanted to do it, and they right. started, and then my I, I had a, a radio show on Sirius XM. Mm-hmm. For eight years, with with my good fellow friar and good friend Ian, who has a production company, and he said, "I don't like the the way they're doing your uh, your um, documentary. I want to do it." So he took it over, and and it took a long time to put together. But I told him, you know, I don't want to know anything. Just whatever you need, go talk to whoever you want. I'll connect you with whoever. I'll give you all my pictures, all everything. You know, but you know, don't. Not that there's any real punches to pull. I mean, I never murdered anybody or anything, but you know, there's plenty of scabs and, and calluses in my life, and that's fine. You know, so hey,
0: you know, you know what? I think that's the trans, you know, transparency that we talked about earlier. You know, we're just people. You know, everybody's got scars and things that happen in their life that uh, can break them or can make them look. You know, I just, you know, I just recently had something happen, and you know, someone was calming me down. He goes, "Don't worry, Steve." He goes. A couple months from now you'll look back at this and you'll laugh at it you know and sometimes you have to pause and go yeah i gotta put i gotta put this in perspective you know you know i woke up today it's a blessing you know
1: that's right right that's where you'll start from you know yeah i'm yeah. 75 so you know people say oh i'm on the back nine i say, the back nine i'm on the 18th green shut the fuck up you know
0: <laughs> that's, <laughs> jesus that, that's right and you know what when i think Tell me if this is true You know uh, People are age over 60 Right On up You know Uh, I get like almost Like pissed off It's like I'm tired of talking About doctors And this and that You know Oh this aches and pain Yeah we all fucking Got aches and pains You know Uh, And I think the comedy Aspect of it is Hey you know what let's let's tell a joke let's let's break out of this before we you know spiral down the rabbit hole of of pain and aging you you know
1: and i say you know this guy's got a knee operation and this guy's got a back operation this guy's got a colonoscopy. i'm like you know you know there was a time when we talked about beer and pussy do you remember those (laughs) days you know jesus christ you know
0: so um it really
1: is true and and that's what's comes and you know but it's still it's still ridiculous. and still interesting. And it's still funny because everything goes wrong. You know, you can't complain about one specific thing hurting because if you the, the next thing you know, you something much worse is going to happen. So shut up. You know, <laughs>
0: <laughs> let, me, let me let me let me ask you this, uh, Jackie. You know what? A, a lot of uh, and they talked about Stern kind of rebranding himself uh You know, and I think he's an excellent, he's always been an excellent interviewer. And I've watched his stuff and, you know, I'm interviewing. So I want to emulate the good people who interview uh, themselves. Did you see a change in your comedy over the years? Like, I don't think you really changed your branding at all, right?
1: I've never changed it. It probably has changed. I probably, I look at old tapes of me after an hour on stage and I am soaking wet. That's stroking right. wet from just going, you know, and it's just, but it was just me telling jokes. It's the same thing. I just must've done it at a different pace. I, I'm in tune with my audience. You know, I remember I was at first, I used to be, what do you mean you're going to start my show at seven o'clock? And then I realized, wait, that's when my people go out nowadays, you know, <laughs> like right. uh, we're in
0: bed by nine thirty. 30.
1: <laughs> right. So yeah, it always kills me. I have a killer show and sell so, whole bunch of stuff and I'm feeling like a million bucks and I'm home in my bed at 9:30 I'm like how the hell did you know usually we didn't even start drinking yet you know so <laughs> <You're right. laughs> but yeah no things haven't really changed all that much you know I used I don't do stuff the joke man as much as I used to but I used to bring the girls on stage and just go just go ape shit up there and I, so politically incorrect but who cares you know like if, if a, they know exactly what I'm gonna do so right, if they come right. up on stage, they can't even, you know, I mean, I'm not feeling anybody up. I'm not, you know, but I'm right, just right. being rude and crazy and, and uh, you know, semi-offensive. And it's, you know, it, it's, it it's, it's a vibe. It's a vibe. If people know that all you're doing is trying to make it fun in the room... You know, that supersedes everything, I think. Now there's always gonna be some son of a bitch that's gonna go, ah, I didn't like that. Well I don't come next time. Stay the fuck <laughs> home, you know.
0: So have you ever have you ever done Vegas? I'm sure you've done Atlantic City, but have you done Vegas, any of the rooms out there?
1: <clears throat> in the nineties when we were really cresting in the Stern Show, I used to sell out the Top of the Riv, which was a thousand people. Did you ever see the movie Casino? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well Robert De Niro and Sharon Stone get married at the top of the rib in this huge room that's completely glass enclosed. Oh, cool! Uh, at the top of the rib, and that's the room I used to sell out. And down the hall from there, they had this immense suite with a grand piano and a second floor, and that was the suite that they gave me when I was working. You know, oh, and cool. the guy who booked me for those shows was Steve Sharippa. For, who was on The Sopranos. Oh, okay. And now he's on Blue Bloods, but he was the entertainment director of the Riviera in the 90s, and we had some wild, wild times. Oh, Jesus Christ, you know. <laughs> just, you good, know just great, just great.
0: You know, you know, it's amazing, and I'm thinking about, you know, people know what to expect when they see Jackie Martling, and I'll never forget, my dad used to go to Vegas all the time with my mom, and he recounted, uh, you know, he, didn't re- he knew Buddy Hackett from the, the Carson show, he didn't know Buddy Hackett's act. And he brought my uh, nice church-going uh, late mom to the show, and he was, like, flabbergasted, you know. And it's not like he could leave, because then you're going to get tortured, you know. But uh, it's, yeah, that's funny it of itself.
1: His, uh, his son, Sandy, is a good friend of mine. We're always oh, back it? and forth. Yeah. And uh, it's really funny, because his name just came up. I'm listening to this incredible book called Outrage. There's this guy named Cliff Nesteroff that wrote a whole incredibly long book that's a whole... It just references everything in comedy since 1860. And it's really fantastic. And he just wrote a new book called Outrage. It's about all the complaining and the craziness and the people that wanted to shut things down from the minstrel days on. And it's it's just insane. And he just... I just got... I'm at the end almost and he just got the Andrew Dice Clay... <clears throat> and Dice's first show was in uh, some some gig upstate, and it was booked by Sandy Hackett. So it's funny oh. that you just wrote his name up because yeah. he, he, he booked Dice for his very first show. But he's a good character, and uh, yeah, Buddy Hackett was you know he was you know he was wild, he was dirty and crazy, and you know,
0: right. But he could he could make uh, he could be the Buddy Hackett made for TV. Too, you know, on on Carson, which it's interesting how you can adjust it. Hey, I gotta ask you. Then maybe I'm getting into the secret sauce a little bit. But before you get on stage, do you do, have you do you kind of outline? Okay, this is where I'm gonna go, or subject matter I'm gonna talk about. No. or it's have, more extemporaneous. I
1: have, act, I have an act, and I do an act. Okay. Uh, it looks like. Oh, I got one. Oh, oh, here's another one. But it's an act. I know everything I'm going to say. If you came to see me on Saturday, you might see word for word the exact same show you saw Friday, or you might not. And the way I explain it to people, it's like if I drive from Bayville, from Oyster Bay, if I drive to Manhattan on the expressway, I'm going to go past every exit. People say, how do you remember all those jokes? Well, how do you remember to go past every exit on the expressway? They're just along the way. Right. But at any point, I can get off at New Hyde Park Road and go and piddle around and tell some different jokes and visit a whole other thing and either come back in where I got off or come back in a little further up on Little Neck Parkway because I know I've killed some time and I just innately know what's going to be roughly, you know, between 55 minutes and an hour and 10 or 15 minutes. Wow. And um, and it's funny, and your act is completely... Uh, the length you react has so much to do with how good the audience is. Uh, or Not even how good they are, but how hard they laugh. Because sometimes you're going to have a great audience and they don't laugh that long. Uh, right. Some audiences laugh longer because it takes them longer to get the joke. So it's funny. You never know. But for the most part, I know what I'm going to do. But I also I got so many jokes from so many different places that just sometimes they just pop up, you know, so.
0: All right, let me put you to the test, if I can. So, <clears throat> by the way, my mom was Polish, my father was not, but my dad would tell Polish jokes at the dinner table just because he could. Give me a Polish joke.
1: Um, f- first, I gotta tell you okay, that growing up in the 50s, um, everything was Italian jokes. Okay. I never heard a Polish joke, ever. There's no Polish people up here, where I'm from. Right. And it never. And all of a sudden I got to Michigan State and everything is that you hear about the Polack to do this. And and I learned 40 years ago that saying Polack is is as bad as saying, you know, bad yeah. words for a Jew or a black person. Right. You know, it's like Polish people. It's, you know, whatever. It's, it's the same thing. But I'm like, and all these Polish jokes, they were the exact same jokes. Right, as the Italian right. jokes. But then you learn that the Aggie jokes in Texas are the Polish jokes of, of Texas, and the, <laughs> newfound, the Newfoundland people, the Newfies, it's all the same joke. It's just all to make, make fun of people.
0: You right, know? right.
1: My fa- my favorite Polish joke is the uh, Polish family sitting around in the living room, and the wife says to her husband, let's send the kids out back to P-L-A-Y so we can fuck." <laughs> which is just the perfect, the perfect Polish joke, you know. They're all fine. You know, and they can all, some of them, like that one, you need, you need to say fuck, you really need, but so many jokes you don't, you don't need, they don't need to be dirty, and so many times they don't even need the Polish guy or the Italian guy or the black guy, you know, because it's, it's, if you just, if, it's if universal the, if the intention is that their people are stupid you know it, it, you don't have to be polish or italian to be stupid you right. know, we you all, mean, <laughs> we're all stupid
0: you know? every ethnicity has yeah has a group of stupid right right <laughs> so right. let me listen you're, you're doing a show you're killing all right you're killing it you know it's just the laughs are coming the energy's there you're you're kind of rapid fire and now you know you, got, you obviously have a sense of timing with the joke, but you have a sense of timing of how much time I'm going to be up here on, on stage. Do you have a plan for that killer at the end, or how, how do you pull that together?
1: When I, when I know I'm near the end, I, I, I stop. <clears throat> About two-thirds of the way through, I say to the people, okay, uh, you've been good. Uh, It's been fun. And so far, it's been a little rough and a little blue and a little naughty, a little testy. But with your permission, I will now get a little crazier. And they (laughs) always go crazy and say, yes, 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 (laughs) yes. Give me more. right? And then after a certain amount of time, I say, all right, you passed the second phase. Now I got five more. Do you want to hear them? And they scream and yell. And then I do a little ad for my book. And then I do five pretty horrible, pretty funny, crazy <laughs> jokes to, to end it. And that's, you know, and that's that's kind of set in stone. Exactly what the five are aren't always set in stone because I kind of do what I feel like. Sometimes I have a brand new joke that I really, really like and I'll use that. And, uh, you know, I, I, I have a joke that. I've, oh, I've just been telling, and it's just not even that funny. And I just am in love with the guy. Okay? okay, go ahead. The guy, the guy buys a farm, and then he realizes he needs a cow. He's got a farm. He's got to have a cow. So he goes to a cow sale, and he sees a good-looking cow. He says, that's pretty good. He says, the guy selling the cow. I think I want to buy that cow, but I want to make sure it's still viable. You know, seller says, go ahead. So the guy reaches underneath and starts pulling on a cow's nipple. And the cow cuts a huge fart. And he grabs another nipple and pulls on a couple times, and the cow cuts an even louder fart. And he turns to the guy selling the cow and says, geez, this cow is from Minnesota, huh? And the guy says, yeah, how'd you know? He says, my wife is from Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just... But you just don't see that coming. It's just right. those. Stuff. Are the, those are the
0: best when when you you know you listen to it like where's the, where the hell's he going? With where's he going? No idea. It's
1: great
0: fun. And, and that's the best. I got to, I got to ask. I got a thousand questions, but I got one more. Um, early on in your career, you know, you always got somebody. Not always, but there's somebody in the audience who's going to try to best you. The heckler, you know, he's going to you know he's maybe a little in the sauce and he's going to bust your balls. How is it for you early on in comedy to handle that and how you do it today or how well, you did it? You know,
1: you know. We, we played in bar rooms. So we told jokes and played songs and they were rowdy. So yeah. we had lots of lines to shut people up. So when I became a comedian, I, <clears throat> I had lots of horrible put downs. But the thing is you have to be careful because if somebody heckles you and you come back at them with something that's really, really funny, you don't want to encourage them to do it again because they're going to want to hear the next thing. You know, I like say stuff like, oh, I hope your next shit is square. You know, and people will <laughs> go crazy laughing. Like, oh, let's let's tempt them, you know. But, right. Uh, but I always had fun with the hecklers. And uh, yeah, and then the stories about that are, are always great. Always great. You know, and the trouble is you cannot, you can't reason with a drunk. You know, you could... Right. You could uh, you can be smart and witty, and it's just going to bounce off them if they're drunk and stupid, you know. So you just got to play it as best you can. You know, I had, I had, a, I had a table full. I was working at Rascals South in Ocean Township. And okay. those are the best, best clubs, the Rascals Club. There's like 400 people packed in. And I'm destroying wow. this place. And there's a little table in the front with about six guys, <clears throat> all guys, no girls. And they were, they were bombed. And They're okay. having they big, stern fans. I could tell they're having the time of their lives. And <clears throat> this one guy, uh, you know, heckled me a little. And you got to pick your shots. You let him. Yeah. You let him say something here and there because it, it, you can't respond after each one. If that's the art, the art is not having the lines to shut them up. The art is knowing how to play it. You know, and you always right. feel good when you do it right. Yeah. But this guy was a little too drunk, and he's. Give me a little bit of crap. And I noticed that he was wearing a Rangers jersey, <laughs> a Rangers ice hockey jersey. In and Jersey. N- the ne- <laughs> in Jer- and the next time he said something, he said, all right, out in the hall, 15-minute penalty. And the bouncer came over and took the guy out into the fucking <laughs> hall for a 15-minute penalty. It was the most creative thing I ever did. The crowd was nuts. And then after about fifty minutes, I said, all right, you're going to let him back in. And he just walked back in with his tail between his legs and sat down and he shut up. And it was just... And afterwards, the guys at the table were like, that was the greatest. Thing. I'm sure they tell that story every night of their lives. Because it was, just, it was just perfect, you know.
0: That's where, you know, that's where I think... One, telling jokes and then have situational comedy. You know, it's just like being at the Thanksgiving dinner table or any dinner table uh, that, you know, you come out with a quip that is just so witty and so biting. And, and, you know, you look around and like everyone's laughing. I'm like, I didn't think it was that funny. But if you did, then it was, you know, of
1: course, no harm, no foul. The right thing at the right time is everything, you know.
0: Timing, rhythm, silence, uh, I tell you. Hey, Jackie, I really I really want to thank you. Um, you're <coughs> really generous uh, to, to come on the Long Island Sound podcast and, and tell us, you know, a, about your life. I really encourage everybody to get, watch the documentary, come to the Long Island Music and Entertainment Hall of Fame on the 27th of January. I'm going to do my best to be there because I'm sure I got like 10,000 questions I didn't ask you. Uh, and I, I really right. think...
1: People can come. They can ask anything they want. Um, one thing I do, I do, I do cameos. Do you know what they are? Oh, because, sure. You know, I charge like seventy-five bucks, and I do a couple a day. I, I actually make decent money because everybody, you know, tell my oh, father, like it, tell my father a joke for his birthday, or just like my, you and George, you and George Santos,
0: right? You're doing yeah. the.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know what? What's really funny is. When that moron got fired and started and they started talking about doing cam- that reminded the world all those cameos all that you know because people forget all about them cuz it's the best gift you know oh, sure. that people have for the rest of their lives and it's a tamp, uh, stamp stamping time and everything like that and of course I'm on Twitter uh you know I don't do a lot on Twitter but I put my gigs there. I put a joke here and there right and I, and I still got five one six nine two two wine my dirty joke line's been going for 44 years hey for, can you how,
0: how do you find the cassette tapes for the answering machines hey. i don't know how do you <laughs> <laughs>
1: at, at this point it's the second line on my house phone and i change it you know every couple of weeks i just sit there it's just an outgoing message and it's so ridiculous But I just love being able to tell people it's still going because the stories about that joke line just go on and on and on. You know, my autobiography's out, too, called uh, The Joke Man Bow to Stern. And people read it and like, wow, I didn't know any of this. I didn't know that's how it happened. I didn't know what, you know, because all people know is Howard's version of everything, not just of the show, but his version of my life. And, you know. And people find out I'm I'm a generous, nice guy, you know, and they're like, "Wow, that's not the guy that we know from the show." Yeah, you know. Well, yeah, Modi you know, Mo- ex- really used to poke Curly in the eye, either,
0: you know. <laughs> <laughs> right, but you know that's an interesting point because if you're a funny person, right, people expect you to be funny, but you're not funny all the time. You've got uh-huh. you've got this whole plethora of, of complexity of who you are. And you know, you can get kind of uh put in tunnel vision. Ah, you know, be funny. <laughs> you know, it's like okay, but there's there's more to it. And and I think we saw a piece of that today, uh, in having our conversation with you. It was really a blessing too. Well,
1: uh, I was glad to do it and uh and oh and my my um my website is jokeland dot com. So if you wanna know how to get tickets or where where the hall of fame is and all, all that stuff, you know, just uh Go to Jokeland.com and and come to a show and and whoop it up.
0: Yep. (laughs) Everything is going to be in the description below with all of of Jackie's links. And, uh, man, really looking forward to the 27th of January. Thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it. My
1: my pleasure. My pleasure.
0: Thank you for joining us today. I appreciate the time you spent with us. Please subscribe and comment and visit us at GigDestiny.com. Till next time, be generous with your joy, keep your spirits high, and let the music take you on a journey. Be well. Peace.